0: And we're all protecting and fighting and coveting all these little things. But if we got together, there's, there's not much that we can't do together.
1: Welcome to the Passion Behind the Art Show. It's all about diving in with individuals to learn the story behind their passion. It's your host, Daryl Pinnock. So before we jump into this week's episode, um, I want to let you know that we have a new shirt out for the podcast um, new shirt out, so go to dpcreates.com and order your shirt, and it will be gone June 17th, so it's a limited edition shirt, and I think pretty much all the, the gear for the podcast minus the stickers will be limited edition. So go to dpcreates.com and get your shirt, that's D as in dog, P as in Peter, creates.com. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Chris Doe. Well, I am beyond excited to have Chris Doe on the Passion Band of Art Show. I feel like I know him. I've had a couple people that know him pretty well on the podcast and I'm um, just interacting with him online. I'm pretty excited about this. Chris Doe, welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Awesome, awesome. Um. I don't. I'm not sure if you shared the story much, but how did this creative journey start for Chris, though, As far as you want to go,
0: uh, where does it make sense to pick up the story? I don't want to bore your audience here.
1: <laughs> All right. So when did it even when did it even happen that oh, okay I want to be a designer?
0: Oh, okay. I want to be a designer, and I realized that when I was 17 years old working at a silk screening place, and I was doing production artwork. Basically, I was inking over the pencil drawings of my boss, Brad Shaboya, and I had been contemplating what I'm going to do with my life after I finish high school. And at that point in time, I was going to go down a pretty traditional path. Uh, I was going to probably study some kind of business science or something. I, I had no idea really, maybe computer science, who knows. And it's in one of the errands that he sent me on to go and pick up some artwork from a local graphic designer that it became apparent to me that what I really wanted to do was be a graphic designer. So I show up at this man's house. It was a short drive from, from work. And he invites me into his home because he's not quite ready with the artwork. And this is when I first see the Mac in, in the hands of a true professional living, breathing graphic designer. And he had one of those beige uh, 512k Macs with a giant laser printer. And this thing, world to life, and out comes this sheet like a minute later, and it's some typeset. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. And while I was waiting for him to do this, I looked around the room, and he had a set of beautiful markers. He had some packaging mock-ups that he had done. He was he had a client that was into remote control cars, and so it was a box for a package of tires or a spare axle or some gears. And he printed out in black and white, and he colored them with a colored marker, and it's, And it was like the first time I'd ever seen anybody actually be a graphic designer. I've seen Macintoshes before at the local computer store, but they were using things like Mac Paint. It seemed more like a technology demo than a tool that I could use. So once I saw that, my world kind of meshed together, and it just seemed very clear to me this was a path, and and now it's not just a dream, it could be real. That's when I knew.
1: That's um, pretty awesome. So so you know now that okay you want to be a graphic designer you are pursuing this i know that out the gate you started your studio like where do you think that even came from to just want to start your studio out the gate
0: mm-hmm. there were a couple of things i had for whatever reason promises i made to myself yeah as early as i can remember one is i wanted to start a business and i had failed at many businesses and the other thing was that I wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't know why I where these ideas came from. But I know early on, money was not plentiful. We grew up fairly poor, and we slowly but surely went up the socioeconomic ladder and were able to wind up in the upper-middle-class neighborhoods. But the early stages of my life, it was I wanted things, but there was no means, and it, it felt Selfish or irresponsible to even ask my mom or dad for things because all I saw them do was go to work at the crack of dawn and come home When the Sun came down and they worked and they took care of us and so I wanted things it was just maybe a purely Childish and desire to have stuff that I just couldn't have and so that Burned a fire inside of me and I started to sell candy. I sold uh, ninja stars Uh, That was illegal. Don't don't do that (laughs) I, I did all kinds of things. I started to design t-shirts after working for my boss and sold t-shirts, but I didn't know how to run a business. So that failed. So it was just like constantly trying stuff. And so when the opportunity presented itself to start a business, I jumped at it because it was like the culmination of all the things I wanted to do.
1: Well, like one thing I can truly attest with you was like the whole idea of not being born here and... um with this mentality of just like coming to, for me like coming to this country it was just me my mom's and my brother in like a tiny room and um, How did like the whole idea of you being an immigrant affect your journey?
0: Okay, I have to be honest because I came in uh, to the United States when I was really young I was only three years old and so I know of no other home or country other than the United States And I remember asking my dad because when we were watching TV and Gilligan's Island would come on, that was my perception of what Vietnam was like. Like people living in huts on dirt (laughs) floors and there's no electricity. And there, there's many scenes where like Gilligan's like pedaling the bicycle to, to do something. And I asked my dad, dad, is this what? Our home was like before, and he laughed at me like, are, are you an idiot? No, it's just like here, except for it's it's a different place. You know, We, we have running water, electricity, and indoor plumbing. <laughs> you idiot. So I, I can't even pretend to know what it was like. But unfortunately, the sad part of the story is that the kids that I grew up around made it painfully aware to me that I, I didn't belong here. I didn't look mm. like the, the kids in my neighborhood, and I struggled to fit in. And and that w- was something that was very painful at that time, emotionally and physically sometimes. But looking back on it, those experiences they make you who you are. So if I'm determined, um, I'm risk tolerant, I'm, I'm I'm ready to try new things, and and I'm not shackled by fear. It's because of those experiences experiences. So I in in hindsight, I'm I'm quite grateful for it.
1: Okay, because I I after listening to just various times you've mentioned bullying like I my brother went through bullying severely my younger brother he went through mm-hmm. bullying severely and that's part so part also part of the reason because we were immigrants and um and, uh, we came from Jamaica so we had that serious accent so how would you say like what what would you say to someone that's experiencing bullying? Like how, what advice would you give them? What, speak to bullying for me just a little.
0: Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm no expert on this subject, right? But I'll share my experiences and take everything I say with a grain of salt everybody here. So I have an older brother and I have a younger brother. So I'm a middle child and my older brother is four years older than me. So he was at that age where if he was graduating, graduating from high school, I was just entering. It. So there's no overlap we exactly four years apart, so it wasn't like I had an older brother to protect me. And he would always tell me things. like He said, bullies, typically, they seek out the people that are the easiest to pick on, the weakest, the people who aren't going to fight back. So, to me, I know it's scary for you, but the best way is just to stand up to them and they'll leave you alone. And it's, it's easy to say when, when kids outweigh me by 30 pounds, Right, and and they're they're big and they're athletic. It's typically it's not like nerds pick on nerds. That doesn't happen. Right. It's always the athletic, faster uh, to grow. They tend to want to rule the roost and they pick on targets to make themselves feel better. And the only way that I could stop them was to actually stand up to them. And I don't know if it's pride or what was driving all this stuff, but I knew that if I let it persist, if I even let it happen then this was never going to end at least that's what my brother told me Mm. that that advice did lead me astray one time i'll tell you about that story in a little bit so you know you step in the first day it's like the prison prison yard you know uh they look for the weakest (laughs) kid to like smack down so first day in school you come in and they they give you trouble right away instantly because i look different and and i look like an easy target but then I, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to take this. Okay, fine. You want to fight me? Let's fight. And you you can obviously probably kick my butt. And I don't even know how to fight, right? I'm, I'm a designer. I'm a creative person. And, but I knew that if I did that at least it would stop. And I had a friend. His name was Eddie Lemus. And um, he's, he's Mexican. And he's a much taller guy than me. But he's, he's kind of lanky and a little awkward. And those bullies would chase him around, even though he's bigger than them. And I said, Eddie, you got to stop running. You got to stop running, and he's like, "It's easy for you to say because you have an older brother, and I have nobody to help me." Oh. But the thing is, my, my older brother never appeared on campus ever. So this is just a mindset, right? So I stood there and just said, you know, even though I'm a smaller person, less athletic than Eddie, I just stood up to them, and that was that's how you you stop it. Uh, I know that running to tell a um, a supervisor, a teacher, temporarily solves the problem. But really, it's about learning to say, you know, I'm not going to take this. Now, ideally, what you do is you you take some self-defense classes, you start to exercise, you become more physically fit, and you don't put such a giant target on your back. Right. And I also think um, kids that get picked on, they need to group together because there's strength in numbers. And when I play video games and there's much more superior um, gamers than myself, I say, look, 10 dogs can take down a lion. And right now, we as <laughs> dogs, guys, we can take down this lion but we can't run. Concentrate your fire on that guy. And he might take one of us, two of us, but at least we'll stop him. We'll stop the onslaught. You just can't just see these guys come at you and run. That's not <laughs> you do. Stand your ground. And that's all I have to say about that.
1: Oh, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. So, now let's fast, fast forward a little bit. Yeah. You've started blind. Um, how did you get your first big client?
0: Okay, I've I'm trying to remember what the first big client is, and I I probably have had a couple. I, I was very fortunate to have worked with some really talented students who then went on to do bigger things, and they remembered, hey, that Chris guy, he did all right. So then they brought me in. So in the initial stages, my friends, my peer group, were able to help me get work. And I remember doing the web design for a large multinational, multi-billion dollar cosmetic health and beauty brand the project Ooh. wasn't organic but the brand was and it was right. amazing and we got to do that and then I, about two years out of school I worked on my first car commercial which is pretty mind-blowing if you think about it Right. right so that was all because of this network about having good karmic equity put out there into the world helping your friends out when they needed you when they didn't have money and sometimes the universe works out for you that way.
1: Oh, okay. So where did you get this? Like, you have this ability to set the table like you're making a movie with your words and just telling a story. Like, how did you develop this?
0: Oh, man. Now you're starting to come in with a hard questions, huh? Mm. <laughs> just... well, first of all, thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, you, you don't really know what you have or don't have unless somebody tells you. You're like, oh. Because this is just my reality. I remember, so I remember when I was growing up, that there was a part of me that liked to to tell stories, to entertain my cousins, and to make them laugh. And I do remember saying and acting and doing the weirdest things just because I enjoyed the laughter of other people, and maybe they gave me a little bit of attention. But because I'm a non-native uh, English speaker, uh, because uh, we we grew up the way we did, I just felt like the only place I could do that was at home or amongst my cousins and extended family. But outside, I was like some weird leper to the, to the colony, you know, and I was an outsider. And that was always tough. But when I feel comfortable enough around people, I start acting different and I start acting goofy and, I, and I'll do wild body gestures and impersonations and say outrageous things. But that was all kind of tucked away for a really long time. So what you're seeing now is me coming to the full realization of who I am and being 100% Mm -hmm. to who I am and essentially not giving an F what anybody thinks. So that's part of it. And part of it is I think my brain works a certain way that it's very quiet inside my head. So I can hold a thought. I can think about what what I want to say and I can alter it in real time as it's coming out of my mouth. And I think that allows me to set the stage, if you will, and and to tell the story.
1: (laughs) That's insane. Like, not everybody could say something like that. So so my question is, I have two questions. Like, Mm -hmm. when did this realization happen? Is this recent or, you know, a good amount of years ago that you can do this?
0: and let's let's expand on what is this i want to make sure i'm answering the right question
1: so you said that you had you start um you started to have this realization that okay i can do this outside mm-hmm. of just the safe place of home or this is my inward person but when i come out into the public i'm just you know a leopard
0: yeah okay I I think all of us have our circle where we feel really comfortable. We let our guard down. Mm -hmm. We're among people that will not judge us for a single action or word that comes out of our mouth, right? We all have that. You can call them your bros or your sisters or your family members or, or your best bud, somebody like that. And you kind of act a certain way around them and you feel very comfortable. The key is to expand that circle and first, you, you, you do this with your cousins and your family. Like I could walk around in my underwear around my parents. It's not going to be a problem. I'm not going to do that in public, obviously. <laughs> right? Right. But as I'm figuring out who I am in the world, so I go to art school. I go to design school, I should say. I studied graphic design. And then now my circle just dramatically expanded because now I'm among people that want the same thing as me. So almost immediately, I start to feel this connection with people who are pursuing the same passion as myself in this incredible place. And so there I start to open up a little bit. And, mm. and the more I start to come into my own and to know that, well, who, who am I? you know That search of trying to answer that question. Well, before I was just a young person trying to figure it out an Asian American, a first generation immigrant. What, what was I, who was I? What was I gonna offer the world? But now I had a whole nother facet to my identity. Being a designer, being a design student and learning about topography and graphic design I started to craft a new identity for myself. And then I could belong to larger groups of people. And as I got out of school, now I became a part of a group of people who graduated design school and pursuing a professional path and studying motion design or or kind of figuring out how to do that. So I was now joining another group of people. So those circles keep growing and growing. And eventually there are fewer and fewer holes or pockets where you feel uncomfortable. So the the bubble grows. And I share the story. With people, Because after years of working in the industry and winning a bunch of awards, I was now asked and put in that position to judge other people's work. But it felt really strange to me. I would go and judge a show about work that I don't do much of, like broadcast design work. And then immediately, that nine-year-old kid who was picked on reemerged again. Because now I was outside of my comfort zone. And it's a whole... It's a whole long, arduous, sometimes painful and embarrassing process. Luckily now, as I'm um, much, much older, I, I have the mindfulness to sit there and think, I'm feeling something. It feels uncomfortable. Why do I feel this and how do I want to react? How do I want to deal with the situation, the emotion? And I'll give another example. Okay, Recently, I was in Toronto and there was a party, like a, a VIP party prior to the event. And I went there knowing that I was going – not I didn't know a single person except for the event organizer, the person who invited me, and possibly one other speaker, but I wasn't sure if he was going to be there. So I go to this bar, and of course, everybody knows everybody, and that nine-year-old kid is back. And I was like, I should just go home. This is really weird. I, I, I'm standing here like an idiot, and I don't even a <laughs> drink, right? I'm at a bar, and I'm looking like for another lonely face in the crowd because, you know – if there's somebody that's standing just equally as awkward, you just approach that person and say, hi, how's it going? That was my survival technique, right? But there was nobody standing awkwardly standing by themselves. So what am I going to do? And every part of my instinct, every fiber of my body was like, run, leave. I was like, no, you're going to get through this. It's super uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you are putting too much focus on yourself. And if you look around... Everybody's having conversations like they don't even know you're here. So don't worry. Just chill. So I found a good spot. The good spot was somewhere in the middle of the room with my back against the wall so I can see everybody. And I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm looking for an opening so I can jump in there and talk to somebody. Hmm. And I made a commitment to myself. Stand here. Deal with the uncomfortableness of this all and just deal. And I got over it, man. So, that's the difference between a nine year old version and a 40 some odd year old person. Like, you address these things in your mind and you just overcome them. And you realize nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention to you anyway. So, does it doesn't even matter.
1: Ain't that the truth? All right. Yeah. So, there's a question that I want to ask you so bad. And What's it is place? how does it feel to be a, a driving force? In changing people's lives.
0: Mm. It is. It, it, I got to tell you, it feels incredible. Mm. This is the stuff that gets me up every morning. I'm usually up by six, seven a.m. I'm usually going to bed by one or two a.m. And I don't feel tired. I can do this for a really long time now. Physically, my body may not agree with that, but in terms of what's in my mind, I'm ready to go. I've never been so motivated to write content to produce to reach out to people, to create more tools and, and ideas for people to succeed. And there's this idea that I think a lot of people hold on to that's just not true, that if somebody else wins, then you lose. It's called the mm. zero-sum, right? Where there's only a finite amount of success in the world. That's why you see this happen, especially in our community. And I don't mean like um, an Asian community or a person of color community. I'm just talking about a creative community. People are so protective of ideas and techniques and resources that they just don't want to share or they're so afraid that people are going to criticize them that they don't share in both cases they rob others of growth and I think that's a silly concept that we as a community need to get together and like you know what if you win then we all win because your success is my success and why is that why do I believe that to be true well, if people that are doing work on Fiverr or 99 designs stop doing that because they have better tools to, to learn how to design better, how to work with clients, how to charge what they're worth, then the entire industry rises, with, right? Yeah. We all benefit. So why not just share that information? Because uh, what is that? A rising tide lifts all boats? Mm-hmm. And conversely, I don't want to be there when all the, the water's out. Like, what, what happened? Right? So there's all this fiefdom. And we're all protecting and fighting and coveting all these little things. But if we got together, there's, there's not much that we can't do together. So wh- why not share it with the world? And, and I got to tell you, I'm not, a, I'm not a super emotional person. You, you know that about me, right? Right. But when I read these letters and when some kid scrapes together 25 cents, two bucks, and sends it to me and says, this is all I got, that rips a hole in my heart in the mm. most profound way. It's like, wow. Right? That means much more to me than somebody of means who's going to buy a $4,000 workshop from us. All That's right. what I'm talking about. We have people from parts of Africa, Ethiopia, uh, Eastern Europe, the Ukraine, um, Syria, reaching out, saying, you're making a difference. The kind of things that you're sharing, no, none of my professors know, and I'm not learning this anywhere else. Or I've learned more from this one video than I have in two years of uni. That blows my mind. So that, that is um, condemnation of the education system throughout the world. But it's also validation that we're doing something right. And if we share openly, we can touch people's lives. And I don't know how that's going to benefit me in the short run. But I, I, I'm playing this game for the long, long, long haul term. here. Yeah, it's a long tail.
1: Facts. That's amazing, bro. That's amazing, because um, like just to get into know people and a good friend of mine, Melinda, um like just to hear the impact that you had on these various people. um mm. It's just it's it's very comforting to just know that there's someone out there just kind of willing to just give without anything in return.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's amazing. All right. So what would you say was the hardest struggle that Chris had to overcome?
0: I've had to overcome a lot of struggles. Not gonna lie. I mean, probably one of the biggest struggles is that of being an extreme introvert. i'm I'm fighting against myself all the time. and I, I think a lot of creative people share this that we 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 don't want to be outside. We don't want the attention. I mean, if I were to do something and everybody were to look at me, I would start to sweat. right? And it's not a good sign. Like what is going on? There's like a coat of sweat on my forehead. And then my pits get all sweaty. I'm like, what is going on? Just deal. Like, why? And whereas some other people, whenever everybody looks at them, they get excited. They get filled up with energy. And that is not me. So I have to learn to get out of my own way. And I have to learn how to prioritize my own needs, my own happiness, my being who I am and being comfortable with myself more than what I think other people want to see me as. And that's a big, big struggle. And luckily, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've made my way through the other side of this thing so that I, I stop caring about what other people think. And that's true freedom.
1: Amen. <laughs> stop caring what people think. So who is Chris's inner circle? The people that you draw energy from, the people that you draw, you know what I mean, kind of keep you going. Who would you mm-hmm. say those people are?
0: Well, I'm going to have to say my family. And I don't mean just like my, my my wife and my kids, but my mom and dad and my brothers and my cousins. They're That's part of my life for sure. And, and part of what I'm doing, I think, I hope, that if I ever really am truly successful on the scale that I need to be, because I, I, I have like I think dozens if not 100 cousins because we have really large families, right? My mom and dad both have eight or nine brothers and sisters each. And so you can imagine how many kids they had. So we have a ginormous family. Sometimes people come up to me and say, we're cousins. I'm like, really? Are you sure? Because I never met you in my life. And they're like, yeah, yeah, because your uncle married this person. And now I'm like, oh, we're that that kind of cousin. But what I want to do is be able to create something that's going to be lasting long after I'm gone to be able to help all kinds of people uh, to pursue a life that's true to what their heart says to do. So all my cousins are, I I think, pursuing a very traditional path. They've been told to become a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, an accountant, um, software, electrical engineer. And I just see them doing something that there's just not the passion because nobody else has shown them a different way. And though I have had a level of success, it's not at that level where I can change the game for them and for other people who think that so that's that's what i want to be able to accomplish yeah Yeah, so they matter to me the people at the office matter to me a lot now we don't have any blood relation but if you spend that much time with people who share your vision who want to see us all of us succeed man the men and women that put in the hours at the office with me to help me build the dream they matter a lot to me, too.
1: Nice. So, as you say that, what about a person that's in an atmosphere or office that cannot relate to that? They don't have that around them.
0: Mm. They don't now, have
1: that at all.
0: Oh, you mean like somebody else that yeah. is Doesn't. listening to this? Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to ask yourself, why are you where you're at? What are mm. you doing? Are Are you trapped with golden handcuffs? Like, the pay is so good... That you can't leave are you stuck in a city by your own design because you're free to get up and move and go wherever you want I live in Los Angeles which is a couple hundred miles away from where I grew up in San Jose I chose to go here because this is where the school is I chose to stay here because this is where the industry is I remember one time one of my uncles had said what are you doing in LA that's a wasteland come come home like be here with us and family's important I said, Uncle, as soon as the the industry moves to San Jose, I am there in a heartbeat. I'm not purposely running away from anybody. Nothing would make me happier to be able to see you on a regular basis. But that's not where the industry is at. So I moved here. I, I've been living in Los Angeles now for 26 years. So I've been living here longer than cool. I lived anywhere else, right? So I consider myself now an Angelino. And eventually, my mom and dad sold their house and moved here. And then so did my brother. And that's about it for right now. But I'd like to see some of them who want to pursue a career in entertainment or even tech to, to move down here and kind of live a little bit in the in the L.A. limelight. Uh, I think that would be awesome. But so I talk to lots of people who still live within an hour of where they were born. Those are your choices. Like your mom took you and your brother and sister, did you say?
1: Yes. My, okay, my, me, me and my brother. Well, I have you and your I brother. Okay, this, yeah, me
0: and my brother. Okay, so your mom took you and your brother away from Jamaica, mm-hmm. and brought you somewhere where there was going to be more economic and social opportunity, right? Right. So you see, it's like people who don't have a lot have a lot of courage, and so that's very interesting, right? So people who do, uh, are, who are born into middle or upper middle class families, tend to get really comfortable with where they're at. And I think Gary Vaynerchuk said there's something like luxury makes you soft. Yeah, he did. <laughs> right? So all those creature comforts, that nice house, white picket fence and the dog and two car garage, that kind of thing. That makes you really soft. It makes you risk averse. Like I'm ready to pack it up at any point in time and move to the next place if that's where it's going to be. Like I've been fantasizing like, well, our business now is in making products and content. I theoretically can do it anywhere as long as there's light. Right? So we need light and electricity and internet. But that describes a lot of the planet. Not everywhere, but it describes most of the planet. That means at any point in time, I'm like, I'm done with Los Angeles. I'm ready to go on my next adventure. Maybe we go to Berlin or go to Paris or South Africa. We can go wherever we want. And I'll go wherever it needs to be. Like, So if we want to grow a community somewhere else, I'll pack my bags and we'll move.
1: And this is coming from a man with wife and kids, yo.
0: So... Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) that 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 is awesome bro so i have a question for you say a, f- a friend of mine he lost a big client right chunk of um his income he he designs on his own runs his own studio now he's in, he's trying to fill that spot yep with ongoing work what advice would you give to them
0: to like okay. strategically go out there and do that this is going to sound horrible but <laughs> But if you lost a big client, call your client's competitor. Mm. It's a good place to start. So if you're working in the shoe apparel industry and you lost that big client, just call up their competitor. Say, you know, we've recently uh, parted ways. I would love to explore a relationship with you. And and oftentimes, like, oh, you work with a Nike, so Adidas will take your call. Right? Or you work with uh, X label, and now the the other competitor will, will look at you. And the other thing too is you kind of it, you're 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 better off playing to your strengths and the and the vertical that you're in. So it, you don't necessarily need to start over. And you would be surprised at how much cachet you have just by mentioning the other company. I remember this. It was a young guy who wanted a job at our company, and he sent his resume in from one of our competitors' fax machine. Back in the factory. <laughs> so it says sent from this company. I'm like what? and he wants to leave so he got the job just purely because he played us was he qualified i don't think so but it worked it totally worked because oh, my cool. producer comes in and it's like hey this guy wants to come work for us he's from ex uh, one of our competitors should we hire him like i don't know if you think he's qualified let's take the meeting next thing i know this kid's been hired
1: <laughs> uh, that's good advice that is good advice because that's basically a competitive advantage
0: it Already. is. Now, you're not going to divulge any trade secrets Right. that, that right, would be unethical right. for you to do. Right. But there is something that's implied. What's implied is you have a lot of experience in, in our industry. You have social proof that you've worked with the highest level people. If you're good enough for them, you must be good enough for us. So there's a lot of that, the psychology part going in, in your favor.
1: I like that. I like that. So, All right, so we are at Blind. You're starting to subside with what's going on with Blind, at least publicly. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but publicly. The future's taking off. What are are you trying to turn the future into?
0: I'm trying to figure out how to teach people in a way that leverages 21st century technology, learning types, and, and how cultures behave now. If you look at our education system, especially in the United States, it's a rather antiquated system. It, it really is about memorization, about following orders, and doing things that the way it's been done for a really long time. Now, we know that in, in order to be successful in the age that we live in, you have to be ready to adapt, to learn, because everything that you read in the book or was taught by your teacher is probably outdated by the time that person's teaching it to you. Right. I'll take, take me, for example, right? When I graduated school, the the term motion design was not even coined at that point. After Effects was still owned by Cosa before it was purchased by Adobe. So when I say I learned um, how to do motion design, I meant I learned it on my own. So what we need to do is we need to prepare the students and and the future workforce of tomorrow to be able to adapt, to learn how to learn, to learn how to figure things out and solve complex problems and I don't know if the current system is set up to do that. The other problem is we're sacking people with so much debt, that the high cost of a, a private art school education is astounding. So when you get out of school, you're going to be somewhere between a dollars to $200,000 in debt. How are you going to ever pay that off? And did you get your money's worth? So we have a lot of issues that we're trying to address. and. I tried to do it within the structures of normal schools but they're too slow moving. They're resistant. Mm. They're saying we don't want to cannibalize our own classes and our our curriculum if we offer it up as an online version. Of what's going to happen? You see the zero-sum mentality creep back up. We should be out ahead. We should try to create as much affordable education as possible, knowing that the goodwill that's been created and possibly The byproduct for all that stuff is a different business model that will carry you for another hundred years. I look at it like this: Lynda.com was sold to LinkedIn for, I think, at that time around 1.7 billion dollars, with a B billion. Now, Linda Wyman was an instructor of mine. Okay. Really? I had yeah, I had her as a teacher, and she taught After Effects. So, as an instructor, she created a whole business model around books. And, and in-person training and started to develop an online course and then that grew into what it is today, valued at $1.7 billion. Now, I have to think that that valuation is higher than most private art schools. Now, I don't know what most private art schools are worth, but I cannot imagine them being more than $1.7 billion. So she was able to create something and create tremendous value to do something that's scalable. And I remember many years ago, I talked to somebody they told me they had a hundred editors working for them full time. That blew my mind. One hundred mm. editors—that's got to be like a wow. full-blown movie studio running a bunch of different movie <laughs> movies simultaneously, right? That number's astounding. Right, that is, is crazy. That is crazy. And so, being able to do that, she, in a way, changed the game for online technical training. She did, and I want to be able to put a dent in the system and move the game forward right so whereas they taught technical skills really really well i want to do it i want to do it for the soft skills like communication the psychology parts the thinking and the theory behind what you do because that's all evergreen content it's not tied to a piece of software but they're much harder to teach so that's our endeavor i want to be able to also replicate everything i've learned not only in design school, but running my own business and being coached by somebody for over 10 years, I want to be able to transfer all that knowledge into some kind of unit that other people can consume.
1: All right, so you kind of dabbled into my next question when you talked about coaching. Because I always wonder how like, you guys get these incredible coaches. How did your mentorship or coaching start? And okay. how did that
0: even yeah. happen? And uh, it started it? over a bowl of pasta at Frito Misto, and I'm meeting a friend of mine who is a sound designer composer. His name is Hugh Barton, and Hugh and I are having lunch, and we're chatting, and he's like, oh, Chris, things have been going really well. Of course, my ears perk up. He tells me about having a business coach and how he was able to double their income, and I was. I'm not shy. I'm like, would you mind sharing that person's contact with me? Right? And he's like, sure. So... Maybe there was a moment where he thought, like, is this going to hurt me? But he didn't pause. He's like, here's the information. So, of course, I go home that day and I I tell my wife, and this is like early 2000s before the dot-com thing implodes, right? We made some money. I was telling her, you know, this is the year that we get serious. Let's hire a CPA. Let's hire a certified financial planner. And let's hire a business coach all at once, right? And she goes, let's do it. Because I said there's no better time to spend money than when you have it. Don't wait for disaster or catastrophe to strike before you start thinking about the things that you should have done. You're bravest Mm. when you have extra runway, when you have a little coin in the bank account. So we hired all three. So we hired a CPA who helped us kind of get our books into the next level. I hired a financial planner to help me do planning for my savings and retirement and also help us to invest money wisely. And I had a business coach and that business coach, his name is Keir McLaren. You've seen him on our show because we're doing a whole mastermind series with him. All right. And I worked with him for over 10 years where he came into our office once a week for an hour, an hour and a half and sat with me and we would talk and we would, he would help coach me through whatever it is I was struggling with. And we did that for a really long time. Right. So that's, that's how I did it. And, it could have turned out that he was horrible then i would have looked for somebody else but i felt like at each and every time that i learned enough he would introduce a new concept to me that kept me there i was like wow okay there's many peaks to this mountain and every time i think i've reached a peak there's another one another hill to ascend and so that's why i stayed with him for over 10 years
1: cool now there's two things that struck me with what you said like the whole idea of um when you have the money, that's when you're bravest. That's kind of the opposite of what most people do. It's like you mm-hmm. save up money for the rainy day and you keep that money. And then when the rainy day comes, you made this When you don't have anything, when it's all about to fall apart, then you use that money.
0: Like, where did you get that from? Mm. Well, let, let me think about this, right? So, you're, you're right. I think your observation is spot on. Most people act and make big life changes when they hit rock bottom. Like when you wake up one day and there's like a, a needle stuck in your arm and there's tracks all over and you, your teeth are falling out and the whole world is bottomed up and you're, you don't even know where you're at. That's when you decide to get into rehab and put your life together. Or you're near bankrupt, you're running on fumes and you have basically, living, you're living hand to mouth where there's about two weeks worth of runway for you left. Now you said, say to yourself, well, Whatever God is here is not going to carry us forward. So now we have to change what we do. And that's how a lot of people operate. They, they operate out of fear, and that's not the way to go forward as a human being or as an entrepreneur. So more people are afraid of what they lose versus what they have to gain. My mentality is on what do I have to gain from this? And I, I know that there's a part of me that is defective, that for whatever reason in my mind, whenever I see something, a situation, or an opportunity, I always think I'm only going to succeed. <laughs> I never think about how I'm going to fail. It's almost like something is wrong with me because I never let that enter my mind. Let's go for it. Why not? So my wife isn't quite as risk tolerant as I am. She tends to focus too much on, oh, what will this happen? And what are the legal forms? And did you think this through? I'm like, no, if I thought like that, I would never make a move, right? So we have to be willing to see an idea and act because a lot of things, believe it or not, are dependent on timing. You can wait too long. You can overthink a situation. It's uh, what is that called? Paralysis by analysis. You overthink, you overthink, and the opportunity is gone. So I don't know exactly where that comes from. It could be the fact that we we really came from nothing, having left or fled our country and coming here with nothing, uh, living on government support with uh um welfare or food stamps or whatever we had to do to survive secondhand shops those kind of things so i always felt like i didn't have anything i survived then if we lost it all you know how to survive we'll we'll make it (laughs) we know how to survive i've eaten uh white bread with liverwurst before with tomatoes i've done that (laughs) i've eaten top ramen we can manage right you could buy the bargain meat it's fine.
1: Dude, that is, that is crazy. That's... I mean, I love it because um, I've been nursing this um, this thought and I share with you, my wife is the same way. She's a little bit more like um, what's the downside of all of this and stuff like that. So, right. But I share that same sentiment with you in regards to what you just said. It's just funny because kind of like a post that you made the other day when you said, um. I hope I don't destroy when you said people spend time saving money versus um, saving time by spending money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. People want to save money by spending Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the wrong attitude, right? You want to save time and spend money. And those are the people I want to work with. So people who don't value their own time will not value your time. So those are the kind of clients who will say, yeah, let's just make one more change and I want to think about this a bit longer or how hard would it be to do this? And right, right, like that one cost too much, would it? That's their mentality, right? <sighs> Is that sending uh, chills up your spine? <laughs> yes. So I like people who have three assistants working with them that could barely have enough time to meet you because they value their time. Right? They've delegated everything to, the, to their subordinates and they trust them so they have a whole team that supports them. And they know when they see a good idea, let's act. Let's act fast and let's, let's get the person the money and the resources they need to make this work.
1: I love it. So what is the first hour of Chris Doe's day like when he's getting ready to, before to do his thing to start an epic day?
0: Mm. Uh, this is evolving, but I'll, I'll tell you the truth what it is like today. Usually the first hour... I, I spend a few minutes just thinking about maybe what I thought about the night before. So I try to resist touching my iPhone and it's hard. So I will sit there in bed. My eyes are open. I'm thinking about whatever it is I need to process. So I give myself a moment to reflect and then I grab my phone and I'm just jamming through social media. I'm checking Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Who's comments and what, what videos are tracking well. And I answer as many questions or comments as, as, I, as I can. I just bang through them, right? I read a little bit of the news. I check my mail to see if there's anything that's urgent. And then I put my phone down. And then I'm ready to to go brush my teeth and get started with my day. And what happens is I'm building up a certain amount of energy. Like you're taking a rubber band and you're pulling it backwards, right, until a point in which you have to release it. So I can only stand to be in bed for so long. So then once I hit a certain point, I just jump out of bed. And sometimes it startles my wife. She's like, honey, do you have to really do that? I'm like, when I'm ready to go, babe, I got to go. And I will myself. You're you're building up all that energy, that potential energy, and then you release into kinetic energy. So then I just jump up and I go, go about my day because now my mind is fired up. But I say like it's changing because I think I want to prolong the period of doing nothing even just to be still with my thoughts, and I want to get on the iPhone or the box later, right? But I just feel this compulsion to like, let me respond. I want to respond. How's this video doing? Right? I have to post this now, and that's what I'm doing.
1: Nice. I like that. That that not going on your phone thing is like, one of the most hardest things for everyone right now. It's tough, <laughs> usually, man. What I, no, no, I no lie. I just turn, put my phone on airplane mode, that when I get up in the morning, there's nothing to notify me. But right. So, what is that one thing that you cannot live without? Without not the phone, that one thing gadget or that you you feel like it's a part of crystal, being crystal.
0: Mm, I don't know. I mean. I think I can live without anything except for, of course, the relationships with people in my mm, life. So, okay. my answer would be there's there's nothing. I mean, there's not a book that I can't live without. There's not a gadget or device. I I just need the mental clarity uh, to be able to think, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's the really cool thing. Oftentimes I find that when I'm bored and I have nothing to do, like I'm stuck in a in a train or uh, as what happened when I was flying from from Dublin to. Madrid it was a short flight it was like an hour and a half flight it wasn't that long but on that plane ride I, I couldn't do anything there's no internet you know and it's a small plane it's a little bumpy I was just thinking about how the previous workshop had happened right or what I wanted to do and I was reflecting on that and and then all of a sudden it came all to me this whole framework for a new talk so I started to to write things down as fast as I could in my little notebook. And as soon as we hit the ground, I exclaimed to the two guys that were traveling with me, guys, I got something good. Watch what happens in the next workshop. I'm going to unleash this new concept. And I did it. And it was this thing that it was a big hit. They're like, wow, that was really good. When would you come up with that? I'm like, literally on the plane over. Right? And that was it. Like, I, I, I had the idea. I wrote it down. And then I went to sleep. And then that that was it. So having nothing sometimes is everything. Hmm.
1: Well, think about that. So, did you know that that video you made about value-based pricing, about pricing a logo, was going to go that crazy? And what was that like?
0: Mm, okay. Uh, yes and no. Okay? I knew that that night, it was hot. Like, it was good. Like, we, we got into it, and there was a lot of emotion, and there were some good laughs, right? Like, I asked uh, one of the guys that's a friend of mine and somebody that I coach. coached. And he's like what rate do you charge and he's like I charge a full rate full rate I'm like a fool's rate or a full <laughs> rate because that's too little and everybody got to laugh you know at his expense unfortunately and we did this thing and and I can see like the look on people's face their faces was like oh my god is this real is this possible and and I was happy because I've been I've been teaching now for 15 years okay you you may not know this but I, I was teaching at art center for 15 years on and off. And these are the kind of moments we have in class where I wish, like, gosh, I wish there were hidden cameras everywhere because when it was good, it's like those, this moment, like, you hit on DVR, like, let's clip that part and let's share that with the world. So we released a video online and it does okay. It's getting, like, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 views. I'm like, what's going on? So I was thinking, man, this piece of video could teach so many people how to think about money and the the value of their work, I'm going to go spend some money. I asked one of my uh, my team members to do a post, a sponsored boost on YouTube. So now I'm going to spend money, basically, to teach you how to make more money. And you, if you watch the video, there's no pitch, there's no sales, there's no kit I'm trying to market. It's just pure value. So we put a little bit of money behind it. I think I spend, spent around uh two or $3,000. Mm, like yeah, real that's, money, that's, dude. That's I, could, real, I could buy it. That, that's, that's, that's real, real money, money, right? I took money out of my pocket to put money in your pocket. But what happened was it picked up enough views and then it seemed to get on the radar of a couple of people and some some people who wrote blogs and shared it and they started to share it more and more. But that video did not go crazy bananas on YouTube. It went crazy bananas on Facebook, right? So we, we took down, we cl- we cut down a small clip of it a chunk, a good chunk, and we put it onto onto Facebook and that thing took off. And people were like mad. People were screaming like, great, oh my gosh, is this possible? And then we knew we had something. Amazing.
1: What year was that?
0: I I don't know. I think it's two years ago. Okay. But I don't know. I just make content. It's all blurred to me now. It feels like it's at least two years old.
1: Because when I first heard it, I was like, Yes, finally someone else I hear talking about this. Because when I heard about value-based pricing, I was in 2015, and I started listening to a podcast called The Art of Value. So he basically interviews a whole bunch of different people that does value-based pricing. So it was pretty cool to hear someone else talk about it, which, um, as you know, and the rest is history.
0: But it's interesting because um, our videos tend to perform much better on Facebook than they do on YouTube. We have a video that we released that has over 4 million views on Facebook. Mm, nice. That's pretty crazy, nice. right? That's more than probably most of our videos combined.
1: On YouTube.
0: Right, on YouTube. Right, right. Yeah, because we don't have any that's cracked a million. So if I were to add them all together, it's probably not going to equal 4 million.
1: But you're not doing too bad. <laughs> Well, I mean this has been amazing. So as we're getting ready to wind down, like, um, what advice would you dude, I already know you've shared a ton, like you've been dropping knowledge all night. But what advice would you have for creatives?
0: That's too broad. Right.
1: That's too broad.
0: Can you can you box me in a little bit? That's too broad. All right.
1: So mentally, because I think with creatives I guess because we use our minds so much, I think that's probably our biggest struggle mentally and overcoming whatever the fear is or or even stepping out or being even more assertive when you feel like a project is not going the right way or whatever the case may be or even just putting yourself out there you know
0: yeah So. Um, okay I, I think you're, you're onto something here and for the few years that I've been teaching via an online platform I've shared lots of tools, techniques and strategies, mental, verbal jujitsu, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. None of that matters for anything if you don't believe in yourself. And I think the path towards real change and evolution and growth starts with you understanding that you are your own best and worst enemy at times. Like you're your own best friend and more often you are your own worst enemy that nobody would ever critique you or judge you in the way that you judge yourself. That little voice inside your head that tells you you're not good enough, that this is not valuable, um, that you should be doing this for free, those kinds of thoughts, those li- limiting beliefs truly hold you back. I've, I've been kind of screaming at the top of the mountain saying, Come up here, guys. It's wonderful up here. <laughs> uh, the air is better. The food is better. The water clear and clean. But there's so many people down at the bottom of the hill saying, Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to stay here. Maybe I can't climb and and so the the thing that i can tell you is this is that everybody thinks it's this this one dramatic thing that they need to find in their life to make the change possible but in truth it's really the small stuff the inconsequential stuff one bad habit one limiting belief and if you change that everything can change and you should be able to realize the life you've always dreamt for yourself <sighs> And I'll, I'll make it concrete because somebody's going to listen to this like, oh, that's a bunch of crock, right? What What is going on here? What is this kind of woo-woo, spiritual Zen self-healing moment. nonsense is this is? <laughs> right? But let me, let me make it really concrete for you. For a long time, our company was stuck to about four or five employees. And we had so much work, and I couldn't, couldn't take on more work. I turned it down. I'm working with my business coach at this time. He's like, why don't you just hire more people? It's a mistake to think that work and the opportunity will always be here. Hence, the expression, strike while the iron's hot, right? When when things are going, you got to grab it because you don't know how long it's going to last. And doing a little deep work with him, he discovered that I'm afraid to fire people. So I can't grow my company. I can't take on this extra work, these opportunities, because I'm afraid of bringing on somebody who's not perfect. So I was being very slow to hire, being very selective and careful because I knew that to get rid of somebody would really kind of hurt me emotionally and psychologically. It's just it's too big of a burden. So he knew that and he had to help me understand that there's a right way to let somebody go and there's a, a wrong way and that ultimately it's their responsibility, not mine, to fit in here. And if they don't fit, wish them well, send them on their way and they're gonna do fine somewhere else. So it's just like this little idea, if you think about it, like, I don't wanna pull a movie reference that some people might not get, but in the movie Inception, Leonardo DiCaprio's character asked somebody in the film, what's the most dangerous thing in the world? And he said, an idea, right? Because his wife and he were stuck in a dream he had to tell her this is all a dream and to kill herself and she will wake up but that one idea after she woke up she kept thinking her life was a dream and ultimately she wanted to prove it to him that it was a dream and she committed suicide <sighs> so this is that little idea this little inception thing that happens inside your brain that's holding you back it is on the surface really inconsequential something very small but if you were just able to flick that thing out of your mind, the floodgates would open and the kind of happiness and success that you're supposed to have, you can actually achieve. Amazing.
1: Amazing. Dude, um, I could talk to you forever, man. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been Uh, Epic man.
0: Thank you. It was really fun to talk to you. I think you asked some really great questions and you made it very comfortable for me. So I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Well for now I'm gonna let you go, but Chris though, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. I hope it brought you a ton of value. I'm always open for feedback and just to hear what you thought and What stood out to you the most? So reach out to me through my Instagram or Twitter, DP Creates, and just let me know, like, how did this episode impact you and what did you get from it? What stood out the most? I would love to hear what it is that brought you value. So go to dpcreates.com to get the new shirt i'm really going to be pushing for the new shirt it's a pre-order and um it's going to be gone june 17th um so it's a limited edition so the first shirt for the podcast did 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 good so we uh, want to do this again um so dpcreates.com thanks again for listening to this week's episode be blessed